I am uh, grateful that you're here today. And again, if you're a guest, I want you to know that we're glad that you chose to be with us this morning and hope that you'll stick around after church. I want to invite you to turn uh, to Luke 24. That's where we're going to be reading together in just a minute from a story in Luke 24. Uh, We are in week three of a series that we're calling Back to the Bible. And uh, in this series, we are talking about the Bible, but really we're also talking about how to think about the Bible and how the Bible functions. Uh, If you've been a reader of Scripture for any length of time, one of the things that I've said in the first couple of weeks of this series is that you know that the Bible can be uh, tricky to navigate sometimes. It certainly is a a gift, and it's uh, a book that is the place where we discover Jesus, where we find faith in Jesus, but it also can be at times difficult to navigate. How do I know where to start with Scripture? Where do I go? What do I look at? What do I look for? And these are some of the questions that we're trying to answer in this series because the Bible can be complex. And I've talked about that uh, at, at length already, and it can be tricky to navigate and knowing how to navigate it. But And so because of that, I, I want to just state again this morning, my goal for this series as we study about the Bible and thinking about the Bible, is to hope to kind of peel away some of the things that people find challenging about the Bible. And uh, and that some of those those things, as they're peeled away, what what will happen is that you and I will actually re-engage Scripture even more. Uh, That, you know, the the Bible won't, won't sit on our shelf or in our pocket if you read your Bible on your phone or uh, in a bag, if you read it on an iPad or something, you know, that, but that, that we'll read the Bible in more ways than we have, and that it will become a living, breathing word for us uh, in ways that maybe we've not discovered before. So I want to just remind you as we start some really key information about the Bible that I've covered, and I just want to kind of fly through this this morning really quickly. The Bible is a library. Uh, that's what we talked about in the, in the first week of this series. It looks like a book. It's, it's leather-bound like a single book, but it's really a library of books, 66 books. So it's a small library, but 66 ancient books make up this library. This library was written over a span of 1,500 years, uh, and, and it was written by approximately 40 different authors and editors that compiled and put this thing together. And it was written in three different ancient languages. Uh, and so using diff- and those languages use different styles, right? We, in the Old Testament, we have uh, poetry, psalms and proverbs and things like that, the Song of Solomon, poetry books. And we have letters in the New Testament. We have history books in the Old Testament. We have prophetic books, both in the Old and New Testament, uh, that talk about prophecies and things that are going to happen. And so there's a lot of different kinds of literary styles that make up this book, which makes it, which adds to part of the complexity of the Bible, honestly. And so when you think about the Bible this way, one of the reasons that, I, that I've talked about it like that, when you think about the Bible that way, the human element of that is, is pretty clear because humans were involved in producing this God-breathed book. But 2 Timothy 3 also talks about the fact that the Bible is inspired or is God-breathed, and that's what we talked about in week two. And so we wrestled in that sermon with how the Bible can both be uh, involving humans in its production and be inspired and breathed into by God. And, and, and I would just say that that's really the way that God's always worked, right? Through people. Both, we see that both in Scripture and it's the same in the producing of the written word. And so 2 Timothy 3 talks about two purposes 
for the Bible. Uh, and, and, I, and this morning, I want to just remind you of these because we're going to actually talk at length about number one. The Bible's two primary purposes are to lead us to Jesus, and it can be useful, Paul says to Timothy, in training us to be like Jesus. That's my summary of what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. But these are the two primary purposes, and the first one is what we're going to talk about today. What does it mean to say that the Bible leads us to Jesus, makes us wise for salvation, is the way Paul says it in 2 Timothy 3. And the way that the, the Bible does this this morning is by functioning as a witness, which is why I've titled the sermon, Can I Get a Witness? The answer is yes, you can. It's the Bible. And so this morning I want to talk at length about how the Bible leads us to Jesus. And, and I want to answer two main questions as I do that. What does it mean for the Bible to lead up, to, to function as, to read the Bible as a witness? What does it mean? If, we, if, if, I, if I say the Bible serves and functions as a witness, what does it mean for us to read the Bible as a witness? That's the first question I hope to answer. And the second one is, what can we expect from the Bible as we read it and use it as a witness? And so to answer those questions... Uh, we're going to look at a lot of different passages of Scripture this morning, and so I want to ask you that some of those will be up on the screen, and we'll read. You're certainly welcome to turn to those. Uh, but as we answer those questions, what does it mean to read the Bible as a witness? And then what can we expect from the Bible as we read it as a witness? I want to do that by looking at several different passages, and I also want to talk about your favorite TV show, Surprise Endings, and The Grand Canyon. But before I do all of that, I want to pray, and so let's do that quickly. God, this morning we come, and we ask for your presence to be felt among us this morning as we study your written word. As we, we ask this morning, God, that your written word point us to the living word, Jesus Christ, that we'll see him more clearly today as we open your written word together. We're thankful for the Bible and the ways that it points us to Jesus, and we ask that you'll help us to see how it functions in that way as a witness to Christ uh, cl more clearly uh, as we study together. We pray that you'll give us ears to hear and eyes to see all that you want us to hear and see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when the first Christians uh, tried to explain the implications of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus... When the early Christians tried to explain what had gone on with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, as they're sitting around and reflecting on this significant event that took place, they, when, they, when they tried to talk about that, they used the Old Testament scriptures to do that. Because that was the only Bible that they had at the time. Right? And I think sometimes we forget that as we read these New Testament stories, their Bible, their scripture was the Old Testament. And so... How do you sit around if you're, if you're a person in the story of Acts and the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost and, and, this, and God is starting this new thing and building His church, right? What, what scriptures do you use to talk about what's just happened in Jesus? You talk about, you use the Old Testament scriptures to do that. And in the story we're going to look at in Luke 24, this is what exa exactly what happens. Jesus has just been raised from the dead. And, and the story that we're going to look at is, is a story where he has an interaction with a couple of people who had decided to follow Jesus, become disciples of his, but are wrestling with and thinking about what in the world has just gone on. We thought this guy was the Messiah. 
and he died. And now we don't know what to think about all this madness that's gone on in the last couple of days. And so we're going to pick up in Luke 24, beginning in verse 13, and read this story together. Luke says these words, Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, specifically the life and the death of Jesus at this point. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside them, but they were kept from recognizing Jesus. And Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them, Cleopas, asked Jesus, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Like, how did you miss it, man? There was a guy that was crucified. This whole crazy scene happened and played out. How how could you have missed it? But Jesus kind of, this is where I think you see the humor of Jesus, but unless you're looking for it, you kind of miss it, right? Like he kind of playfully prods them along, like, what things, you know? Here I am, you know, I'm about to be, I'm, I've, I died and I'm a part of this. I've been raised from the dead. What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken about. What? Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So you didn't think Jesus showed up in the, in the New Old Testament, but Jesus says, let me use the Old Testament scriptures to show you what they have been saying all along about me. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther, but they urged him to stay strongly to stay with us for it is nearly evening the day is almost over so he went out to stay with them when he was with them at the table he took bread and gave thanks broke it and began to give it to them then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight they asked each other were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures the old testament scriptures to us They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, where there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. The risen Christ uses the Bible of his day, Moses and the prophets, to explain and to point to himself. The written word pointing us to the living word and again it's worth noting here right that jesus doesn't just pull out his copy of the old testament out of his back pocket you know he's not quoting book chapter and verse to them as he's explaining or he may have been but they didn't have chapters and verses so he might have been referencing certain books that were mentioned because he does talk about moses and all the prophets but he's not pulling out his hard copy of the bible right the first century people weren't carrying around their bible on their smartphones. no jesus 
He begins with the story of God in the Old Testament, and he tells them how it's been pointing to him all along, which is another way to say what I've said, and I'm going to say again today, that all of these books point to Jesus, and all of these books point back to Jesus. That is the point of the Scriptures. And Paul does something similar in 1 Corinthians 15. And I'm going to read from there as well if you want to follow along with me. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5. Paul says these words, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here it is. This is what Paul received. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Paul is writing the New Testament Scriptures, so we know he's not talking about those, right? He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. And that he appeared... That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Paul is describing the key events in this Christ story, and he uses this line, according to the scriptures, two times to explain his understanding, right? What scriptures? Not the New Testament, the Old Testament. And just like Jesus, he uses this, the scriptures, which were his Hebrew scriptures, so which, which Old Testament scriptures did, did Paul use, right? We don't, we don't know for sure because he doesn't mention specific texts like Luke mentions that Jesus talked about Moses and all the prophets. But again, my best guess is that Paul is making a point, the, telling the larger story of what's gone on in the Old Testament and how it pointed to Jesus and how it proclaimed a, ahead of time, again, that Christ was going to die for our sins, that he was going to be raised on the third day. And as Paul understands it, that's how the Scriptures function. This is how Jesus, and again, how Jesus and the writers of the New Testament use their Scriptures over and over and over again. They use it to make sense of what has just happened in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But it isn't just Jesus and Paul. See, I think when when the first Christians used their their scriptures, when they read the Old Testament scriptures, they didn't just read it as a description of God's dealings with Israel. When the first Christians read their Bibles, their Bibles would have been the Old Testament, right? When they read their Bibles, or more likely heard their Bibles read out loud, they read it as sort of this setup. This was all setting up and explaining something that was going to come. That's why you hear in Luke 24 these two disciples wrestling with what's going on with the death of Jesus because they go, we thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel that, that the Old Testament scriptures had been telling us was going to come. We thought it was a setup and it was going to be finally explained, right? And when the, when the first Christians read their Old Testament, they read it as a setup and an explanation for what God was doing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's one way to think about how the first Christians read the Old Testament. See, right now is the season where uh, probably, I mean, if, you, if you're a TV watcher, your favorite TV show is returning with a new episode, right? 
And many of our favorite TV shows, at the end of every season, they end with a cliffhanger. Some, sometime back in the spring, the final episode of whatever season your show is in, right, ended with a cliffhanger, hoping that they could get you to come back in the fall when they begin to air new episodes, right? A cliffhanger works because it assumes that when a show ends, right, that they're, they're, it will leave us with this sort of burning question, and, and a desire for an answer to that question. Like the greatest cliffhanger maybe of all time, who shot J.R., right? Still maybe wondering what the answer to that question is, the burning question. Or will Ross and Rachel get back together, right? Or do, why do they have to go back to the island for all of you Lost fans? That's a, that's a Lost reference. Is Jon Snow really dead, Game of Thrones fans? The one that has just answered earlier this year for all you This Is Us fans, how does Jack die, right? The Old Testament story ends with a cliffhanger. And there's really a long period of silence at the end of the Old Testament. But this burning question left hanging in the Old Testament story is, will God keep his promises? Will God keep the promises that he has made? And someone might ask, well, what promises did God make in the Old Testament? Well, there were some really big promises that were made, right? The promise to bless the world through Abraham's descendants didn't get answered at the end of the Old Testament. And so people are wondering, how in the world is God going to keep that promise? The problem to set David's descendant on the throne forever did not get answered in the Old Testament. And so people were wondering, is that going to be true? How will it be made true? And the promise to forgive Israel's sins and bring them out of exile once and for all was not answered at the end of the Old Testament. And so there are these burning questions, this cliffhanger moments where Israel is wondering, is God going to keep his promises? Can we still trust God to come through for us? Which again, for us, seems like a no-brainer because we know the backside of this story and we're looking back on these events. But they, in the moment, are wondering, will it be so? Will God keep his promises? And the life, death, resurrection of Jesus answered these questions that are left hanging for Israel with a resounding yes. In 2 Corinthians 1, 20, Paul says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. The life, death, and resurrection, though, are more than just a, a resolution, right, to these questions, to these cliffhanger moments that we find in Scripture. The life, death, and resurrection, they are a resolution to those cliffhanger moments, but they are more than just a resolution to that. It is also, the, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus is also a surprise ending. See, at the, at the a surprise at the end of the story makes you rethink the whole story, right? You know this in the movies that you've watched and the stories that you've read, right? You mean Charlton Heston didn't actually land on a different planet. He landed on Earth in the future, right? That's this way of thinking about a, a surprise ending, right? You mean for you people who have seen the, the, the movie The Sixth Sense, you mean Bruce Willis was dead the whole time I watched that movie, right? Or maybe this one, Darth Vader didn't 
kill Luke Skywalker's dad. He is Luke Skywalker's dad, which again, I realize isn't a, a surprise ending. It's more a surprise in the middle of the story, but it makes you go back and rethink everything that's already happened and also makes you rethink what's going to happen in the future, right? Thinking about this, just, just think about that idea of, of a surprise ending and that that's one of the ways the death and resurrection of Jesus functioned. In the first century, I, I really believe this, I believe no one but on earth but Christ himself actually believed that the way God would keep his promises was through the cross. It, it seemed like the last option. They wanted an army. They wanted a military. They wanted to conquer, right? These guys in Luke 24, you hear them even say, we thought he was the one that was going to what? Redeem Israel to bring us back to power. I think no one but Christ himself believed that the way God would keep his promises was through the cross. That is what makes what Jesus did so radical. It was a surprise twist ending that no one saw coming. But once you see it, once you see the twist at the end, once you see the surprise ending, you can't unsee it, and it makes you rethink everything that's already happened in light of this new reality. And when you go back and rewatch a movie that you've watched before or you read a story that you've read before and you know the ending now, right, what happens? If you're reading a book, you flip back to the beginning and go, wait a second, this happened up here and I didn't see how it was connected to all of the other things that now I understand more clearly. And you see hints and clues and they are everywhere and you didn't notice them until now, but now you see everything in light of that new reality and you see it in a whole new way. That is what I believe happened to the first Christians. And again, I think sometimes we kind of forget that and maybe even become a bit numb to it because we already know how the story ends, right? We came into the story after it had already ended. So, so we already kind of, you know, the surprise is not so much a surprise for us. And what I want us to see is that as we look at Scripture is to see it with those kinds of eyes so we go back and look again at things that maybe we would have missed all Along The early Christians did this, and I believe as they thought about the death and resurrection, I think it forced them. You know, most of them Jews, right? Until Gentiles became part of the church, most of them Jews to go back and reread their Hebrew scriptures. And now they read it with the end in mind because they've just lived through it. And it changed the way they read their Bibles. They no longer, I think, started with Genesis and read to Jesus. Right now, I think they start with Christ, and they read backwards, and they try to make sense of all the things that have happened. And I'm telling you, that your, if your printed Bible can help you see that this is true. If you ha- I don't so, so much the, the, the digital version on your phone, I'm fine if you read your Bible that way, I do too, but, or if you read it on your computer, but your, your printed Bible will probably have footnotes in the bottom. Just test me in this and go and look at your Bible and look at how the New Testament writers use the Old Testament. Anytime there's a little note beside something they say or some passage and you look down and it's got an Old Testament reference, they are all using the Old Testament to try to help make sense of what they have just seen happen in Jesus Christ. That's how they use the Old Testament. The Christ event, the death of and resurrection of Jesus changed the way they read their Bibles, and it inspired them to write the New Testament. Because they knew they had to keep this story going, and they had to continue to tell about what God was doing. So if the Old Testament 
is a, is a collection of writings to set the stage for Jesus, to make God known as he comes to earth. Think about the New Testament as a collection of stories and letters that look back on what's just happened in Christ, where Christ has been raised from the dead. And if you were here last week and you heard Damon Parker preach his, a sermon out of John chapter 4, you heard a great example of what this looks like. John writes a story about a man, Jesus, sitting at a well with a woman who he shouldn't have been talking to. And Damon beautifully showed us how you can use that story to look back on Old Testament well stories, right? And if you didn't hear that sermon, you should go back and listen to it on our website or on the podcast because it'll help, it'll help clarify a lot for you. The written word leads us to the living word. The written word, lowercase w, leads us to the living word, capital W. And that is why the foundation of our Bible, if you're going to throw anything at me this morning, this is where you're going to throw it at me. Hear me out. That's why the foundation of our faith isn't the Bible. The foundation of our faith is Jesus, church. The foundation of our faith is Jesus. What? We don't build our faith on the Bible, though it will do everything it can, and it does it perfectly in pointing us to Jesus. But it is Christ that holds this library together and makes both sides of this shelf worth reading. It is the red letters. It is the thing that happens in the gospel stories that holds the parts together. Christ is the foundation of our faith. Right? The Bible, you might say, doesn't the Bible tell us about Christ? Absolutely. That is one of its primary jobs. That is what witnesses do. They point to something else. They give testimony to something that they've seen. And if the Bible, as God's Word, leads us to Christ, the Word of God, then our responsibility when reading the Bible is to not confuse the two words. Right? Not to confuse the lowercase w with the capital W. The witness, is not in, the witness is not more important than the person that it points to, to whom the witness is telling us to look at. Right? And, and again, why is this distinction important? You may say, Doug, you're, you're, you're making a point about something that I don't even think is really all that important to make a distinction about. I think when we confuse the two, right, when we confuse the witness, the Bible, with the main event, Jesus... God's written word with the living word, we can end up committing idolatry, or what I want to call bibolatry, which is a made-up word that just rhymes with and sounds like idolatry, but it's making the Bible into an idol, something that we worship, which I, and I think God would go, wait a second, you've missed the point. Jesus is who we're worshiping. Jesus is who the Bible points to. And we do this, I think, when we expect the Bible to give us something that only God can give when we give the Bible what is due only to Jesus. Here, here's a, a, an example of this, and then I want to show you scripture that I think supports and, and points out what I'm saying so you don't think I'm just making this up, right? This summer, our family went to uh, a, on a vacation, to the, and one of the stops on our vacation was the Grand Canyon, and we used, we used a map to get there. Now, my map happened to be on my phone as I was, Siri was telling me how to navigate my way to the south rim of the Grand Canyon. But just imagine with me for a minute that when we got to the Grand Canyon, right, and we pulled up to the, you can't pull up right to the edge, but just imagine that we could have, you know, driven right up to the edge. And when we got out of our car, we walked to the edge, and I, and I turned to Lana and the kids, 
right? And I, and I said, guys, what a map. Look at this map. It is unbelievable, right? It got us here, right? And once we arrived, right, that maybe other people start showing up and we start comparing maps. And I, and I, and I, show, I see their, their route is a little different than my route. And I say, you know, there really is only one way to get to the Grand Canyon. You know that, right? Right? What, what if you, when you arrived at the Grand Canyon, you, instead of looking at the scene before you, you highlighted your route that you had driven? You, you retraced it, and you walked back through the way that you had arrived at that place. You studied it, and you memorized it so that maybe one day you could put it away and could just get there on your own, right? Congratulating yourself for following the map so faithfully. And then imagine that someone shows up again, and they've got a map, and now you start comparing your maps to each other. And you know, if, if, if we're just imagining this scene, right, they get there and they have a route that's different than mine. We both happen to arrive there. But you know, I had in this imaginary scene, I had to correct them, right? I told them, you know, you know, there is only one authorized way to get here and you didn't take the right way. Imagine that I said this and then we started arguing about who had the more reliable map. How ridiculous would that be? To stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon celebrating or defending or fighting with other travelers about the route they had used to get there while totally ignoring the Grand Canyon in front of me. It makes no sense, does it? And yet this is, I think, exactly what we do when we make the witness more important than the person to whom the witness points. I, I'm telling you, I've shared this with our elders. I, have, I don't, I don't want to say weekly because I don't want to be exaggerating, but it might be closer to weekly than monthly, but I can guarantee you confidently say I have monthly conversations with people who were hurt by someone who used Scripture in a way that was harmful to their faith, right? And they got beat up because they didn't understand one point exactly the same, but they understood Jesus, but they didn't understand that. And, and I think that this has happened across Christianity with well-meaning Christians, right? That, that we, we, we intend to, to, for it to mean well, but we miss Jesus, who the, point by, the Bible's pointing us to because we fight over some of the little nuances that really are not salvation issues, quite honestly, and really don't matter in the grand scheme of things. Because they, the point of Scripture is to point us to Jesus. And that is why I said to you in an email that I think this sermon is probably the most important in this series, that as we're talking about this, this is what we're looking for. Not this, literally, but Jesus. In the Gospel of John, I want to show you some places in Scripture where the Bible says this about the Bible. Jesus says this is one of the problems, what, what I've just talked about, is one of the problems that the religious leaders uh, of the religious leaders who were rejecting him. This is what John 5, 39 and 40 says. Jesus says to them, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that by them you have eternal life. And Jesus says, these are the very scriptures that are pointing to me, that witness to me, that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me. See, the scriptures are a witness, Jesus says, to him. But because they had made the scriptures the object of their faith, the source of eternal life, 
You're missing out, he says, on the God in flesh who is standing before you. It is possible, church, to read and to study and even to memorize the scriptures and never experience the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our lives. I have never said anything maybe more important than that, so I'm going to say it again. It is possible to read and study and memorize the scriptures and never experience the power of the raised Jesus Christ in our lives. The Bible is pointing us to Jesus because what the Bible and the the writers of the Bible, what God wants is for Jesus to jump off the page and into our lives so that we live like him. And the life that we live produces fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit that looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And that is what we read the Bible for, so that we will look more like the person that it is pointing to. In this way, the Bible is intended, I think, to be a lot more like John the Baptist. Listen to how the Gospel of John writes about John the Baptist in John chapter 1. And think about this in relation to the Bible, right? There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through all him might believe through him all might believe he himself was not the light he came only as a witness to the light the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world now just think about this for a minute if you if you if you I'm not trying to change scripture but as we think about as a metaphor the bible functioning like John the Baptist you can put anywhere it talks about John the Baptist you can put the bible right there was a bible that was sent from god whose name was Bible, right? It came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through the Bible all might believe. The Bible himself was not the light. It came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is, I think, how just a, a metaphor, a way, maybe a simple way to think about how to think about the Bible. The purpose of the Bible isn't to draw attention to itself. Any more than our lives, purpose is not to draw attention to ourselves. Every follower of Jesus' purpose is to point to the light that really brings light into people's lives. Right? The Bible doesn't say, look at me, follow me, try. I'm not, it's not the main event. Jesus is the main event, the light of the world. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. In Matthew chapter 17... This message is reinforced. And I want to read this again, too. It's just because I think this is a good way to summarize what we've been talking about this morning. Here's here's what Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8 says. This is a story that's familiar to you, probably the transfiguration, but maybe, honestly, a little confusing. Maybe you've wondered what this story is all about. Well, we're going to talk about that briefly. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them high up on a mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters. Maybe we would think of them like canopies right those pop-up canopies just so you can be protected from the sun the wind and the elements i'll put up three shelters one for you and moses and elijah and while peter was still speaking a a bright cloud covered them 
And a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Then the disciples heard this. They fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. So two figures in this story, Moses, or with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. What's going on here? Again, maybe, this, maybe you've heard this story and you've thought it's kind of a confusing story. I'm not sure what's going on with the transfiguration. I think the best way to read this story is to see Moses as representing the law, the Old Testament law, and Elijah as representing the, the, the Old Testament prophets. So just picture for a minute. The disciples standing there with Jesus on this mountain, and they see Jesus and Moses and Elijah. They know it's Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, is standing there with Jesus, and they're having a conversation. And Peter thinks, man, we need to protect all of these things, the law, the prophets, Jesus, keep them all. And the voice from heaven at that point comes and says, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. See, I think Peter misunderstood the witnesses to be equal with the main point, right? If the transfiguration were to happen today, just in our time, if, if, if we had the privilege, now this is one of those scenes in the Bible, man, I would have loved to just have been there and been able to see what took place. If the transfiguration were to happen today, what I think would have happened is Jesus would have been standing there with Moses, Elijah, and Paul, right? And just imagine that scene for a minute, that we're there and we get to witness Jesus and Moses and Elijah and Paul, the writer of the New Testament, the largest part of you know, the large, writer of the largest part of the New Testament, and I think we would have seen these three Old Old Testament law, Old Testament prophets, New Testament writer, all pointing to Jesus. And then maybe if we were like Peter, one of us would have spoken up and said, "Jesus, should I should I build a shelter for all of you guys?" And I think at that moment we would have heard the same thing. Right? You're still not getting it. There is only one. This is my son, whom I love, who I endorse. Listen to him. And having pointed out, pointed us to the risen Christ, Moses, Elijah, and Paul would disappear in our imaginary scene, and we would be left with Jesus, who has always been and is will, and will always be the point of it all. To me, that is what it means to read the Bible in such a way that it functions as a witness. We're reading the Bible in a way that leads us to Christ. And we look for clues and hints and themes along the way of these New Testament writers that are referencing, they're trying to understand what just took place and now what does it mean for the church and how do we live and how do we function as citizens in this new thing that God is creating, the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. How do we understand and make sense of it all? We're reading the Bible in such a way that is leading us to Christ, but never confusing the two, never confusing the witness with the person. We follow Christ, and the Bible shows us how perfectly. And we are, are we grateful for the map? Absolutely. If, if you missed the first week of my sermon, this sermon series, you, then you missed me saying, this is the most important book for me that's ever been created, and I know it is for you as well, right? It, this is not discounting or diminishing in any way the Bible itself. It's just clarifying the Bible's primary purpose, which is to lead us to Jesus Christ. We're grateful for the map, and we, are, and it, we find it as a helpful tool along our journey. But when we get to the destination, when we see Jesus standing before us, we drop the map 
to behold the glory of God, right? If however, just as another example, if however the end of the world happens and is different in that moment from how you've understood that it happens in the Bible, what you're going to do is drop your Bible and you're going to go, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it's going to turn out that it's okay that you didn't have the end of the end times all figured out correctly because you knew Jesus perfectly, right? And he knew you by name. The point isn't the map. It points us to the point. We worship the King, Jesus. He is Lord. It's all about Jesus. The witness points us to the person. The written word points us to the living word, capital W. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you.